During a trial in 1852, where the judge was drunk, the accused thought the whole thing was a comedy, and the town was out for blood, it was soon no longer a laughing matter when the verdict handed down was guilty. On August 18th, Yankee Jim had a noose wrapped around his neck as a scaffold was quickly thrown together, and the prisoner was loaded into the back of a wagon. After his final words, the wagon driver prompted the horses to move. Yankee Jim fought to keep his six-foot-three body on the wagon bed for as long as possible. When he finally slipped off, his toes brushed against the ground as he, quote, swung like a pendulum until he strangled to death, end quote. His neck didn't break, making his hanging a long and torturous one. In the crowd watching the event was businessman and merchant Thomas Whaley, and somewhere in his thoughts he decided this was the perfect place to build a house. And so he did. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Thomas Whaley was born in Manhattan, New York, on October 5, 1823, and after being raised there working with his father in the merchant business, the lure of the California gold rush called out to him. Side note, Thomas Whaley comes from a long line of merchants. The detailed records of their family lineage shows that he came to Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1722. And James Whaley had brought with him several options in weaponry and items for their care. The settlements were in desperate need of such items, and before long, the Whaleys were known for their skills in crafting and improving weapons. The family moved themselves and the business to New York, where they became a prime supplier of muskets for the Revolutionary War. After a few generations of the weapons business growing and expanding, it was decided that young Thomas Whaley should take over the business dealings. He was sent to the finest schools and got the best education, and when he returned, he did his family proud, until the lure of the untamed wilderness, riches coming up from the ground that anyone could find, it was just too much. He had to witness it for himself. But he didn't head west all willy-nilly, he had a plan. He purposefully took the long way to California by way of steamboat Hercules so he could bring along locks, weapons, fineries, and other pieces of hardware for those beginning a new life and might be in need of such things. He writes to his mother, quote, My wish is granted. This is New Year's Day. I bid you, my friends and country, a long, long farewell. God speed me to the distant land toward which my future hopes are centered and grant a fair realization of my wishes. At noon we set sail, and ere this reaches you, I shall be some hundreds of miles from home, plowing through the mighty main. Regret not my absence, shed no tears, and pray constantly for my safe return. A mother's prayer will be heard. He who has protected me so long will surely bring me back to your arms again. I shall never forget that fond embrace, and those tears which bedewed your furrowed cheeks upon parting with you. 
I shall endeavor not to let your good counsels be wholly lost, but try to profit from them as much as possible. The circumstances under which I am going are indeed very favorable, and should I not succeed, the cause can only be attributed to myself. End quote. And just a personal side note, if I may, I absolutely love when people from history document their life in notes and journals and letters. You can learn so much from the quote-unquote ordinary lives of ordinary people. I won't bombard the episode with all of Thomas Whaley's notes, but it was a fascinating read. Maybe that's why I have this ridiculous habit of writing everything down. Posterity. Yeah, that's it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thomas Whaley wasn't all business. He would pen a letter to his mother mentioning this little tidbit, quote, You might call on Mrs. Linnae. You will find her a very pleasant lady. I may as well inform you that I have a particular regard for her youngest daughter, Miss Anna. Indeed, I love her and intend marrying her if I should ever return from California a rich man. I may send for her. She is a pleasant and amiable young lady of very affectionate disposition and gentle and innocent as a lamb. She is only sixteen or seventeen years of age. You would no doubt love her as a daughter-in-law. And while the dream of striking gold didn't pan out the way he had hoped, he fell back on what he did know, and that was retail. He had no problem finding work and then eventually opening his own shop in San Francisco. Quote, San Francisco was a conglomerate settlement made up of cloth houses, canvas tents, adobes, flimsy stores, and ramshackle saloons. So from there, he opened a second store and rented out his first. After that, he added a second floor to his shop to include living quarters and offices. He expanded his real estate holdings and worked diligently at becoming a very wealthy man, worthy of asking Miss Linnae for her hand. During this time, he also invested in grain businesses and cattle feed and had a side venture with the lawyer, Louis Franklin. In 1851, a fire began in a shop on the south side of San Diego, and because of all of the wooden buildings and wooden planked sidewalks, the fire had no problem or resistance at spreading and engulfing all that got in its way. Thomas Whaley would write to his beloved, quote, This city was consumed by fire the night of the third and fourth. The scene which presents itself is painful in the extreme to gaze upon. There are to be seen only smoldering embers with here and there tottering walls of warehouses that were thought to be proof against the flames. To give you an imperfect idea of the vast extent, it is more than a mile in one direction and about half a mile in the other. Twenty center blocks of the most dense and thickly settled quarter of the town is in ashes. At least a thousand houses have been burned, the largest number ever in the United States not even accepting the Great Fire in New York, is 1835. The loss is variously estimated at from 10 to 15 millions of dollars. Our businessmen are crippled but resolve to surmount the obstacles. Many a noble and courageous heart has fallen victim in their glorious endeavor to rescue from the flames the effects of others. While the tottering walls of Delmonico's were being removed, they suddenly gave way and buried five poor firemen beneath the ruins. By this fire, the buildings which I erected upon Montgomery Street were destroyed. 
I stood watching my buildings until they fell with a crash. In a short space of minutes, all I had toiled for, and which I had looked upon with so much satisfaction, was reduced to cinders, and ashes was all that remained to represent the ten thousand dollars which they cost. Then, adding insult to injury, he writes to his mother with this new piece of barbed information quote, My young lady's mother refuses to let her come to California. End quote. He wouldn't pause for long with this sting of defeat because his love sent along an image of herself to remind him that she will wait. After hearing that his friend Louis Franklin had been seeing some success after relocating to San Diego and encouraged Thomas to come to the area, he packed up his ashes and moved. Louis Franklin and Thomas ended up opening a shop together they called Tienda, California. It was a shop that was already functioning, but the previous owners had lost their profits due to a gambling habit. The two built out rooms on the second floor to live in, and they had a dining and a kitchen area in the back. Whaley understood his role as a local merchant was so much more than four walls and some trinkets. He studied the area and the clientele and even learned to speak Spanish so he could assist his customers better. On December 2, 1851, he wrote to his mother and sister, quote, I have only a moment to say a word. We momentarily expect to be attacked by the Indians who, under their great chief Antonio Gara, are swarming by the thousands in the south. The town of San Diego is proclaimed under martial law. Every man is enrolled as a soldier. We are but a handful of men. Already several parties have gone out to fight. There are only 35 of us left to protect the town and, as it is necessary, to keep a good watch. End quote. By December 15, 1851, Whaley noted, quote, The war has lulled, but not at an end. End quote. He wrote on January 1, 1852, quote, Antonio Gara, their principal chief, was convicted and shot, the painful duty devolving upon me as one of the twelve who were ordered to execute the sentence. End quote. This is an important sentiment. As the stories come into the haunted side of things, and yes, that's coming, but Thomas Whaley's character is painted a bit differently. Here he alludes to it causing him pain having to take another's life, but later history will recall him as someone who readily took up place on the firing squad. I guess this would make him an angrier ghost? I don't know. But this is one of the reasons why I dig a little bit deeper so we can have a better base of who these people are. After only a year, his partner Franklin, who no longer practiced law but switched to the hotel business with his brother, sold out his portion of the tienda and Whaley became the sole proprietor. He worked hard, practically around the clock, but eventually at the end of the year he had enough to be able to return to New York long enough to wed his sweetheart, Anna Eloise, in 1853. She was nine years younger than Thomas, but would move with him wherever he urged and would give him six children. Thomas diversified his interest and purchased property and a portion of a brick kiln, granaries, hay, and rental properties. He was doing quite well for himself. He writes to his mother, quote, I have plenty of my own land to build upon. I have a fine rockaway carriage and a span of sorrels with harnesses of silver. The carriage holds four to six persons. My wife has every comfort and luxury I can afford to give her, 
and we enjoy ourselves to the envy of many. My parlor is furnished with Brussels carpet and mahogany and rosewood furniture, a mahogany crib for little Frank. We frequently have musical soirees, and our house is the resort of most of the best people in the place. My wife is the best little woman in the world, loved by all. She is proficient in music, plays, and sings. End quote. Thomas Whaley began construction on his new home in 1856 and proclaimed, quote, My new house, when completed, will be the handsomest, most comfortable, and convenient place in town or within 150 miles of here. End quote. On August 22, 1857, Thomas and his bride Anna moved into the new home and were determined to make his statement a fact. Thomas himself designed the house and oversaw every part of its construction. It fashioned many of the structures being built in New York City, and we already know that Thomas was going for a bit of a prestige angle. It patterned many of the Greek revival styles he was used to seeing. Large rooms, elegant wood moldings, concealed roof, and formal spacings of doors and windows. High ceilings of 12 feet. It was everything an elegant home should be in the 1850s. It was one of the first two-story homes, and it was the first brick house in the area. At the time, he was doing quite well for himself, and the bricks they were using came from his own brick-making company. The front porch was held up by great yet simple white pillars, and five pairs of French windows were adorning the second floor, while five pairs of doors were sheltered by the veranda that covered the full length of the front. The San Diego History Center writes, quote, Modern in every sense of the word and functionally correct are the heavy brick walls and high ceilings that keep the rooms as cool as if they were air-conditioned. The materials for its building were taken from the land, native clay and river sand were made into bricks and baked in kilns. The embellishments came from the east, cedar for the woodwork, and hinges, doorknobs, and locks from the New York establishment owned by Whaley and Pye, end quote. Whaley's own detailed records of how he built the house down to the last hinge, nail, and knob helped enormously when it came time to restore this historical gem. Quote, the yard and flowers were Anna Whaley's delight, and the kitchen garden contained all manner of vegetables and herbs. Fruit trees were orange, cherry, fig, and pomegranate. There were two cedar trees in the backyard, and Anna had planted the pepper tree on the side of the building herself, end quote. There's a centerpiece to the house that we'll talk about more later, but I just wanted to plant the seed in your head a little early. Thomas created a grand archway that connected the front parlor with the back parlor, which was sometimes called the music room. And, well, it is quite the conversation piece these days. On June 27, 1858, Anna Amelia would be the first child born in the Whaley house. She is the third of their six. This was after 17-month-old Thomas Jr. died on January 29th of the same year, being the first person to die in the house. Their other children consisted of Francis Hinton, who was named for a business partner. He goes by Frank. He was there first. Then comes Thomas, the one who died, and then Anna Amelia. Later, the Whaley's welcomed George Hayes Ringold, named for a business partner, Violet Eloise, and lastly, Corinne Lillian. 
On August 21, 1858, Thomas was awoken from his sleep with the news that his shop on the plaza in Old Town was on fire. By the time he got there, running the whole way, nothing could be saved. It was all gone. This was such a devastating blow, and still reeling over the loss of their son, both Mr. and Mrs. Whaley believed they needed a change. Something, anything, far, far away from San Diego, California. Thomas hung up his entrepreneurial apron and went to work as a commissary storekeeper. The family moved to San Francisco, and Thomas kept this position until 1865, after which he was sent to Alaska to set up shops and to claim the territory for the United States. In September of 1867, Thomas Whaley was elected to the council at Sitka, Alaska, and raised the American flag. Anna and the children stayed in San Francisco. Apparently, later that same year, 1867, the whole family decided to move back to San Diego, and Thomas began right away to make renovations and repairs from their time away, and this was when the addition of the few extra children came along. He had such a vision for the future of his little town of San Diego, he would write in a letter, quote, I must wait patiently until it is known that this is to be the terminus of the railroad. I feel that San Diego, with its climate and bay, can become a teeming metropolis. It has the same possibilities as New York, end quote. He was invested in every way to its growth, and was disappointed frequently, apparently. San Diego History Center writes, quote, He was well equipped to be a leading citizen of his community, a businessman, merchant, architect, mechanic, public servant, and, among other things, a former president of the Board of Trustees of the City of San Diego, end quote. The timeline is a little wonky with the usage of the house, but I believe he built the two-story side for his family to live in, although I believe at least one room on the first level was always used for a store. The family's bedrooms were on the second level. There was a single-story addition to the house, and this was built specifically to serve as the county courthouse from 1869 and 1870. Families and businesses moved in and out and about, and the building transformed as needed. For example, on November 1, 1868, Thomas Whaley leased the second floor of his house and the use of the corral to Thomas W. Tanner for $20 gold coin to, quote, allow him to take down in the second story 12 feet of studying for the purpose of making an exhibition room and a portion of the east end railing of the balcony for the purpose of erecting stairs thereto for theatrical productions, end quote. The Tanner Troop Theater was open for business, making this the first commercial theater in the area. Lillian would write her memories of the big room, quote, the large room to the north, called the Big Room by my family, the Annex by the others, has been used for a number of purposes. It was the county courtroom in 1869 to 1870, the county court records being kept upstairs in the main building. The furniture consisted of a circular railing almost the width of the room, back of which the chair of a judge on a raised platform. A canopy hung at the back of the chair on the wall. The furniture consisted of chairs and benches. Thomas H. Bush was one of the first judges. I remember seeing the jury locked up in the room after trial. Political meetings were held here. 
Later, it was used as a courtroom by Edward H. Burr and Francis Whaley. It has also been used as a billiard room, dairy, kindergarten, Sunday school, store, and residence. End quote. Lillian would stay in the San Diego area and even live in the family home from 1909 until her death in 1953 at the age of 89. For a time, the county records were stored there, but long story short, that ended badly and left Whaley disenchanted with his fellow San Diego man. He would continually change and modify the house in some way. When the commercial records were removed and the city opted not to pay him the rent they owed, he joined the granary to the home. He would brick off windows and revamp doorways to whatever his creative imagination willed at the moment. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. At this point, the family moved away again, this time back to New York, and they didn't return to San Diego until 1879. On January 5th, 1882, Violet, who was 19 years old, and Anna, who was 24, would both be married at the home. Violet married George T. Bertolacci, and Anna Amelia would wed her first cousin, John T. Whaley. Violet's brief marriage would end in humiliation for the young woman. Apparently, George T. Bertolacci was not his real name, for one, and then for two, only married Violet to get her dowry upon their wedding day. George stuck around long enough to enjoy the honeymoon with his new bride, but then one morning Violet awoke and found that she was all alone. George would not return. Violet was forced to return home without a husband and be the center of wagging tongues for some time. She did finally get a divorce for desertion a year later, but that did not help the matters of the heart. She slipped further into depression as her sorrow threatened to overtake her. On July 5, 1885, she attempted suicide by jumping from her window into the open cistern. She hoped to have drowned. After this, she was literally put on a suicide watch. The Whaley's hired Dr. Gregg to keep a watch on her. She was never alone unless she went outside to the brick privy. One afternoon, Violet came to ask her father if she might have the key to his desk drawer. She wanted some paper to write some poetry she was thinking about. Pleased that her daughter was taking an interest in writing again, he handed over the key. He had forgotten, however, that he also kept a thirty-two caliber handgun tucked away inside the desk. The next morning, this was August 18th of 1885, she went outside to the privy early 
and shot herself in the chest with a gun. Thomas, hearing the gunshot, ran outside and brought his daughter inside and lay her on the chaise in the back parlor. She was barely breathing. She wouldn't speak a word, but made eye contact with her family members before closing her eyes for good. While the autopsy would say her death was caused by a shot to the heart, it was later believed she more likely nicked one of her lungs as she remained alive for a full 15 to 20 minutes after being brought inside. She was only 22 years old. From the paper she retrieved from her father's desk, a suicide note was left in her room. It was an excerpt from a Thomas Hood poem that read, quote, Mad from life's history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world, End quote. Following Violet's suicide being such a scandal, the young man that was engaged to Lillian broke it off. Lillian, in turn, would never marry. The oldest son, Francis, Frank, would be married to Susan Murray on December 31, 1888. Thomas attempted to work away his pain by building another residence for his family downtown on State Street, and shortly after it was completed, the family once again moved out of the Whaley House, unable to deal with their grief. The original house would begin to fall into disrepair at their absence. Ever the entrepreneur, this time Thomas dabbled in real estate, and this kept him occupied until his death December 14, 1890. Then, unfortunately, in December of 1905, daughter Anna Amelia died from natural causes. She was only 47. The fresh grief of losing her husband and her child, Anna Whaley, yearned to return to the Whaley house. Her oldest son, Frank, took on the duty of renovating it for her to move back in. The widow Whaley would return to the house in 1909, and even though Thomas Whaley did not die in that house, visitors would say that he is still very present there. This was also when Frank turned part of their home into a tourist attraction. He and his brother were known to entertain guests in the small theater by playing the guitar. And side note, for such amazing record keepers that the Whaley family used to be, the kids, I must say, really dropped the ball, making my job very difficult. I can't, for example, find any record of the spouses of either Frank or Anna Amelia, and the rest of the family's history has huge gaps. Kids. <laughs> they just don't appreciate the generations before them. I did see that as of 1912, all of the living Whaley's were living under the same roof once again. Then, on the 24th of February, 1913, Anna, the matriarch of the family, passed away at age 80. Her son Frank would follow only a year later. George would live until 1928, and the last surviving Whaley, Lillian, would live in the home until her death in 1953. The Whaley house had gone through several transformations, and even while the family lived there, the house provided for them. They rented rooms to individuals and rented the space for balls and parties and meetings and theatrical events. There was usually a shop of some kind, a granary, the San Diego courthouse, and, as mentioned, the historical documents and records were stored there for some time. And, by the way, Obviously, Thomas Whaley's vision of what San Diego could become did grow into a reality. He had hoped and encouraged the train would come their way, but, sorry, was 
derailed at every turn. Finally, the Pacific Beach Railway would come through San Diego near the time of his death. The bad news is, they laid the track almost directly in front of the original Whaley House. So with the rattle and the vibration of the daily trains combined with some earlier earthquake damage, probably helping along, I'm sure sped up the deterioration, widened the cracks, and sagged the flat roof of the historic home. June Sturdwick, author of The Journal of San Diego, would say, quote, The house has witnessed more history than any other building in the city. End quote. Did you know that patronage supporting creatives goes all the way back to Galileo's time? It was a common practice and also considered an honor to be able to support the artists and authors of the time. In fact, in addition to monetary donations to allow the creative to keep, um, creating, the patron would regularly support public shows and sometimes invite the creatives into their homes so they could introduce the artist or writer to their community, raising the creative statuses, elevating their work, and sometimes their station. If you think about it, then and now, we value the opinion of someone we know and would be more open to accept a recommendation from them. What a great opportunity to become a part of a historical tradition by patroning this historical podcast. I don't necessarily need invitations to your home, but any amount you'd feel comfortable with supporting the podcast would be greatly appreciated. And instead of me dirtying up your dishes, the Bag of Bones podcast offers several levels to give back to show our appreciation for your support and encouragement. If you too would like to brag that you are a patron of the arts, and yes, writers fall under that category, I would love to encourage you to choose the Bag of Bones podcast to patron. Just go to patreon.com and look for the Bag of Bones podcast and see all the goodies I've put in there for you to choose from. These are very hands-on levels. I see and respond to each and every new member of the Patreon pages. I am waiting to send you your personalized welcome kit. And thank you in advance from me, Elizabeth Pujray, and the Bag of Bones podcast. According to the Travel Channel and Life magazine, the Whaley House is considered the most haunted house in America. Documentation of the hauntings would be written by Thomas Whaley's own hand. Remember how we talked about him watching the hanging of Yankee Jim and then purchasing the land and then building a house on that land? Well, the archway I referred to that divided the parlors, well, that was quote unquote the exact location of the hanging. He would invite his guests to stand near the archway as he would regale them in the story of the tragic day. He would later write that he heard heavy footsteps in the house and the temperature was always colder in that part of the house. Later, guests would say they would feel a sensation of choking while standing in the parlor. Lillian Whaley would recall the home she grew up in, quote, The whole front was open. The arch which stands between the parlors was in place. It was said that Yankee Jim, who had been arrested for stealing a boat, was hanged over the spot, end quote. Later, she would write how active the spirits were in the house. She was grateful for the spirits' activity as it kept the vandalism down, but then again, it also kept renters away, which was her bread and butter. 
she would note that her mother was very aware of the ghosts as well, and as the word spread of Yankee Jim's apparition, her mother would frighten those who would sneak up to the house to try and peek in, in hopes to see a ghostly image. Later, Lily would say her mother's ghost was there in the house with her. It's not too hard to believe the Whaley house is haunted, as there are so many reports. I have never been there, and after doing this research, it's highly unlikely I will seek it out, but almost every single person who has been there has experienced something. So it might not be that the Whaley house is the most haunted, but it might be more accurate that the Whaley ghosts are more interactive. One visitor sent a letter to the Whaley house after she visited, telling her story. On the day she visited, she angrily wrote in the customer comments in all caps, NO GHOSTS. She and her children walked to a restaurant nearby, and while she was there, she felt a cold hand rest on her shoulder, and when she tried to put her glass on the table, it balanced on its edge. When she tried to place it flat, it wouldn't go. And then, all of a sudden, it set itself right and water splashed across the table. And just like that, the cold presence was gone. She felt the ghosts had come over to prove a point and then went back to their job. Some would report that they could feel a presence. Others would say they could smell cigars, coffee, and perfume. Some would claim to have a small hand reach out for their own as it hung by their sides. Sounds of a baby crying or laughing are quite common. And that would be Thomas Jr. He is apparently very present in the home. Visually, most have seen Anna, the matriarch. She allows herself to be seen quite often. She's been seen in the parlors, on the stairs, in Thomas Jr.'s room, and even out in the garden. There's one story of an officer who responded to someone calling in about hearing a woman crying. The officer arrived. He saw a woman standing in the garden, hunched over. As he approached, he asked, Ma'am, are you all right? She turned and looked at him and offered a smile. But when he pulled his flashlight to shine it on her, she disappeared. It's also said that television personality Regis Philbin met the lady of the house back in 1964 when he was doing a skeptics journalism piece on the house. He saw her standing in the parlor, and the friend that was with him decided he was going to catch the apparition. So he got down on the floor and started crawling toward her. Regis, thinking he was helping, shined his flashlight on her, and she immediately disappeared. They were believers after that night, that's for sure. Several years after Regis Philbin's encounter, a college class was reenacting the trial of Yankee Jim in the Whaley House courtroom. When several members of the mock jury reported seeing Yankee Jim's ghost, the class said they fled in terror. Thomas Whaley is often described when visitors talk about their experiences. He would be the overseer. He will come close to the people and they feel like they're being watched or they can feel breath on their neck, especially around his office area. I think he's the one responsible for the cigar or pipe smoke that people smell in the parlor or in the hallways. There is a consistent activity in the dining room around and under the table. It's believed to be a little girl. She touches things on the table and people feel cold around their ankles when passing by or a tugging on their clothing as if she were hiding under the table. Some claim to have seen a small child with long hair in the room. The volunteers that work there think she was a cousin that would often come to visit, and she died at a young age, 
also within a few dates of Yankee Jim's and Violet's suicide. Both occurred on August 18th. And, speaking of Miss Violet, everyone knows that a suicide victim makes an expected candidate for a haunting, and she apparently is there. I haven't heard of anyone seeing or identifying her through visuals, but she makes her presence very well known. She is often found in the parlor near where her physical body expired, in her bedroom, and she is also felt near the window where she attempted suicide the first time. People claim an overwhelming feeling of heavy sadness in some parts of the house. Violet is very active with almost all the electronic toys that ghost hunters bring in to communicate with them. She will answer questions, she will turn things on, but she, or for that matter, none of the ghosts, readily participate in the talking apparatus thing. Sorry, for the life of me, I cannot remember what they were called. But every time investigators would try to communicate and expect actual words from the ghosts, they would distort the equipment or send high-pitched screeches or alarms in the anxiously awaiting investigators' earphones. Now, don't tell me that ghosts don't have a sense of humor. Over in the courthouse side, alarms, bells, and whistles go off regularly. And also, in the theater, music is sometimes heard, which, you know, seems appropriate. There's also been said gavel banging in the courtroom area and stories around one specific chair in the jury box that never fails to trigger ghost equipment. The people who work there seem to have the best stories. And surprisingly, the Whaley House have a staff of dedicated volunteers and workers. Many have stayed for decades, and they all confirm that there is activity. All the time. They don't fear the residents, but they do give them their space. Although there have been a few times some paranormal investigators have been pushed from their comfort zones, most of the communicators or interactions have been quote-unquote harmless, but there are a few times when they say a demonic presence has made itself known. Which isn't a surprise. Demons most times use the you-can-catch-more-flies-with-honey approach. As long as people are curious and not so much afraid, they'll keep coming. But if people become frightened, it might repel some. A demon's main goal is to get you to not be afraid of their presence. More souls with honey and whatnot. One of the most famous workers has to be June Redding. She has worked at the Whaley House for, I believe, over 30 years and has been on several news stories over the decades. I added a couple to the show notes if you want to see them. She would talk about hearing things like footsteps, doors opening and closing, and the sounds of furniture moving. That was probably Thomas. As we know, he was never satisfied with the way things were. She recognizes the floral scents from Violet's room and the cigar smell from the hallway. She is patient with the numerous questions that come her way on a daily basis. One of her favorite stories is seeing a small dog come running down the stairs through the house. She went chasing after it, worried about the dog possibly ruining something. She followed it all the way into the dining room where it ran under the table, and then disappeared. She didn't realize ghosts could be animals, too, until that moment. Others have talked about a small terrier being seen or heard inside the house, and after some research, I find they did have a dog, a terrier, named Dolly Varden. Today, the house is still bustling with hundreds of visitors every single day. Not sure how many paranormal investigators it allows for, but 
I know, according to the YouTube videos, it remains pretty steady. And the house is always ready for the spotlight. At one point in its history, after the last Whaley perished, it was set for demolition. Some of the locals who loved and valued the treasured historic building pooled their money together to save it from the wrecking ball. They attempted to raise funds with the hopes of restoration. That's no small task. In 1956, the Board of Supervisors of the County of San Diego agreed to purchase and restore it to its original condition. In May of 1960, the house was listed as a historic home and open for regular business accepting visitors. The Save Our Heritage organization took control of the Whaley House and made it a nonprofit in 2000. It has been restored beautifully with many of the original furniture pieces still inside the home. Curiously, on May 17, 2022, the historic house was utilized once again as San Diego's second courthouse, just like it did back in 1868 to 1871. The one-time event extended the current San Diego Superior Court to include the Whaley House as a location for official court business for the day. Judge Richard Whitney presided over four civil cases in a special session that was open to the public. However, even though the building is esteemed and also registered as a California State Historical Landmark, there is still so much that goes into keeping a house as old as this one upright and functional. As a letter in the San Diego Union-Tribune, January 2021, states, quote, What no one tells you about museums is that they all lose money because they don't have enough customers to pay the bills. They need to be subsidized by volunteers who work for free, donations big and small, and lots of taxpayer money. Even our popular zoo needs subsidies, end quote. So the Whaley House finds its way into the news once again, trying to decide if it should be kept as a nonprofit or switched over to a for-profit business. It will be interesting which direction they go. Either way, I have reason to believe that the house itself will remain safe from destruction as its historic value and, honestly, modern form of creepy entertainment has proven itself time and again. Well, friends, that concludes our investigation of the Whaley House an invaluable piece of history that continues to haunt us even today. I'm curious if any of our listeners have visited or perhaps had an experience. I would love to hear about it. Be sure to come and hang out with me at the socials at Bag of Bones Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to share your story. And thank you to our patrons who help keep this show running, relieving some of the stresses that come with creating a podcast. I am so grateful to you, and I hope the content continues to prove that. If you'd like to join our most awesome group, I don't care what any other podcast says, ours is most awesome. I'd love to invite you to join in. Just when you're not driving, head on over to patreon.com and look for Bag of Bones podcast. Whichever level that calls to you will be of great help, and they start as low as $2. Before you forget, go to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com and look for Bag of Bones. I look forward to chatting with you on the inside. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere 
Edited by Katie Bougeret-Caldwell. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones Podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.